Our pop goes the music. Because what is happening in so many areas today is the music has gone pop. Someone said to me recently that music should be divided into two categories. Music that honors God and music that honors the world. One of those two categories. And so the music that is of the world is being called pop today. That's kind of a general category that includes all kinds of music. Not just rock music. Some folks have said it's only the rock music that is wrong. I think there are all different kinds of music that is being used and is, uh, and is called pop. And a lot of Christians are not aware of the problems that are in that music. Pop goes to music. We're going to divide it into three messages. The first one's going to be called Our Musical God. I hope we can show you that our music should be grounded in the person of God. There are principles of the Word of God that ought to be applied to music. I think the reason a lot of folks who have gotten into difficulty is they've said, look, music is different from everything else. What I'm saying to you is that music is like everything else. In fact, if I, what I was teaching you was not like other Bible truth, I'd be afraid to give it to you. But I think you will see as we go along that we're trying to base it on the Word of God, and then we're using a lot of communication experts also to show us what they believe music is doing today. Our second message is going to be called The Style is the Message. I got a letter just several months ago from a man who said, do you think God has a preference in music? I wrote right back to him. I said, God has a preference in everything. I can't think of anything that God doesn't have a preference in. If you want to send a spaceship up to the moon, you better get your spaceship there when God gets his moon there. You say, well, I'll send it up whenever I want to. You can't do that. You say, well, if I want my music loud, who's to say I can't have it loud? God's to say, that's who. God has made your ears to only take a certain amount of sound. And you go beyond that level and you're going to hurt your ears. And one of the things you need to know about your ears is that the cells in your ears don't fix themselves. You cut your hand, it may leave a scar, but it'll fix itself. You damage your ear cells and they are gone for the rest of your life. And many of the hearing ex experts today, audiologists, are telling us that many people in their teens already have ears that have been damaged as much as ordinarily would be in a 65 or a 70-year-old person. And they'll never get that hearing back. Now who determined that? God determined that. God has a preference in what you listen to. And God has made your ears a certain way for a certain purpose. And you can't go beyond that level without hurting. And so the style, and I'm going to give you a number of quotes, not only the scripture, but a number of quotes that will document the fact that style does make a difference. And that's what our second message is going to be. The third message is going to deal with the matter of contemporary Christian music. CCM. Now I should say right off the bat, that there's nothing wrong with being contemporary. I am a contemporary composer. That means I'm writing music right now. A number of years ago, a lady came to Greenville, South Carolina, where we live, and she said, you're Frank Garlock when she met me? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I thought all composers were dead. <laughs> I said, the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. That's Mark Twain, in case you're wondering. But see, there's nothing wrong with being contemporary. But when they use that acronym CCM, they're standing for Contemporary Christian Music. And what they really mean by that is Christian rock. 
Now, it doesn't mean that everything in that category is rock, just like the New Age category. Not everything that is, is called New Age is actually New Age. And not everything that's in CCM is rock, but it means that they do approve of everything that's in that area. And I'm going to show you a number of things that are going on in that area that I think you and I, as Bible-believing Christians, ought to be aware of and we ought to avoid like the plague. I like what John Macugina has said. He is a scholar. He's a theologian. In one of his books, he says, anyone who attempts to battle CCM today will be facing not just a Goliath, but a Goliath on steroids. <laughs> and if you don't think that's true, you try to talk to folks who are into this CCM, show them what's wrong with it, and you'll find you've got a battle on your hands. And you will be fighting a giant. Or if you have allowed CCM to be in your life, you say, well, I can quit it whenever I want to. Go ahead and try it. And as we're going to show you before long, that music is addictive. Now, I've been speaking on music all over the world, literally. And when I first started out, 1965, and I was showing folks that music, that music, right, music is addictive, a lot of folks kind of look down their noses and anybody's be so naive to think that music could be addictive. But I think you're going to see before we get through that you are facing a giant. If it's in your own life or it's in somebody else's life that you know, you're facing a giant. Because what we have today in the church is absolute worldliness. And the passage that is being used by a lot of the CCM people to try to justify what they are doing is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And that has a verse in it which I'm sure you're familiar with, which says that we should be all things to all men. And the CCM people say that means that we ought to go as far as we can, do everything we can to try to reach the world. But actually what the passage is not offensive or active, the passage is defensive or passive. Because it is not all the things that I will do to try to reach the world, but what can I limit myself from doing in order not to offend the world? In fact, if you study that passage, Paul mentions a number of things that we should not do. Things that he said he would not do. For instance, he said, I will not eat meat offered to idols. He said, I will not be a stumbling block to others. I will not abuse my power in the gospel. I will not offend the Jews. I will not disregard the law. I will not give in to my flesh. I will not use worldly wisdom. It's not all the things that I can do. How far can I go in the world to try to reach the world? But how can I limit myself? That's what the whole passage is about. And the people who are trying to use this passage to justify using worldly, rock, pop music to try to reach the world are absolutely taking this scripture and putting it backwards from what it actually is meant to say. Now, for 30, over 35 years, I've used this passage as a key passage, a key theme, if you please, for what we Christians should do in this area of music. God says in Ephesians 5.10 that we should be proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Not what do I like, not what do you like, not what does somebody else like, but what does God like? What does God want us to have? Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And that's what we want to do. And so to begin, I'd like to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Maybe you'll want to turn to it. As you know, this whole passage, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is dealing with the matter of languages. The King James calls it tongues. It is not showing how to speak in tongues. It's showing the problems that are speaking in tongues. 
Because the Corinthian church is the weakest church in all of the New Testament. And here, as Paul is trying to show these people about language, he looks for an illustration. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he looks for an illustration. Now, I have to be very frank with you and say that I come at this backwards. I have to say to people today, look, you don't understand music, I'll use language as my illustration. But I'm very much aware when I do that that I'm doing just the opposite of the way the scripture does. The scripture says, you don't understand language, I will use music as an illustration. And incidentally, whenever God uses an illustration, you can figure it's a good one. Sometimes we preachers use illustrations and we have to say, well, that's a good illustration, but it breaks down along the way. When God uses an illustration, you don't have any problems with it. It's a good illustration. And God here in 1 Corinthians 14 says, even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, whether flute or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? God says that you, when you do music, you make it distinct, you make it clear. And what he is saying is then that you ought to make your language just as clear as you make the music. In fact, in verse 8, he says, For if the trumpet give a, an uncertain sound, if the trumpet doesn't make the, the sound clear, you're not going to know what you're supposed to do. For instance, he says, Who shall prepare himself to the battle? Now, I've got a couple of illustrations that you'll be very familiar with, but let me just show you what we're talking about. Does that mean you're supposed to go to bed? Or how about this? Does that mean you're supposed to get up? You say, well, uh, that's conditioning. To a certain degree it is, but there's something innate, something inherent in the sound that lets you know what you're supposed to be doing. And this is what the scripture is saying. That even when you use a trumpet, you want to make it absolutely distinct. You want to make it clear so people know what they're supposed to do. And this is where I think folks have gotten confused today. They think the music doesn't make any difference. They say, as long as the words are right, why the music does No, scripture makes it clear that the music has its own message. And we're going to talk about that today as well. Go down to verse 11 of chapter 14, and you will find that Paul goes even further. He says, if I know not the meaning of the voice. The word meaning there is a very interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word dunamis. What it means is power. Paul used that in Romans 1.16, where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? The power, the dunamis of God unto salvation. It's the same word here. And what I think Paul is saying is that language has tremendous power, and so does music. You've heard the saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. You've heard that? Might be a nice saying, but it isn't true. You say, why? There are adults sitting in this audience right now that when you were young, someone said something to you that hurt you very deeply and you still haven't gotten over it. Words have power. And when scripture says that words have power, I think it's also saying that music has tremendous power. The world knows that. <laughs> Try watching your TV sometime and turn the sound off and see how much you get out of the program. They realize that the sound has tremendous power over the listener. I want to show you a couple of interesting books. This one's called The World is Sound. The World is Sound. 
This is a secular book, and most of the quotes that I'm going to give you, in fact, I will label them, most of the quotes I'm going to give you are not from Christian people. <laughs> I'm not trying to use folks who agree with me from a Christian standpoint. I'm using folks who are in the secular realm, particularly folks who are in the area of communication, who know what is happening in this area of music. Because this man says, the word logos, in the beginning was the word. In the Greek, it also means sound. Sound. Very important. And he says that the discovery that space is filled with sound was made with modern radio telescopes. The universe is filled with sound. The sound of our solar system is precisely the sound of our earthbound music. You take our musical principles that we use for making music in our churches, principles that are based not only on the Word of God, but upon good musical principles. This man says the solar system is built upon the same principles. In fact, he says that 74 of the 78 tones created by the planetary proportions belong to the major scale. Just like we have a major scale in music. A configuration, he says, that no chance in the world would be able to explain. And he's an evolutionist. But he recognizes that that could not have possibly have happened by chance. No way. He says the sound spectrum of the six visible planets, including Earth, covers eight octaves, almost identical with the human hearing range. Isn't that interesting? That the solar system is built on the same principles that yours and my hearing range is. Then he says that harmony is the goal of the universe. God has made it that way. Here's another book. This one's a music physician for times to come. This is a rather new age book, but I think, again, using these quotes makes it more valid than if I just quoted Christians. This book says that everything is in a state of vibration and is saying something. Everything. In fact, it says there are harmonics in a stone and the same laws that made the stone made you and me. <laughs> and again, this is an evolutionist who recognizes that all the way through nature, the same principles exist. And I think if we recognize that, then we have to realize that it is God who has made these things, and what we must find out then is what is acceptable to him. Because the word proving means to test. God wants us to test things. Some folks say, well, you do that, you're judging. No, judging is passing sentence on somebody or something. And although the Bible does ask us to do that in certain places, that's not what this is talking about. God wants us to test things. We test everything else, and I think we ought to test music as well. And that music ought to be what? Acceptable unto whom? Unto whom? The Lord. So many folks say, this is just a matter of personal preference. <laughs> you like your kind of music, I like my kind of music. Who's to say one's right and one's wrong? I hope before we get through today in these three messages, you'll realize that that is a worldly philosophy that does not belong in Christian circles. There are principles that God has laid down for us in every area of life, and one of those areas is music. But because folks have not proven what is acceptable to God, they've come up with the idea that music is amoral. Sometimes they use the term amoral, just a different way of pronouncing the same word. Sometimes they say it's neutral. Sometimes they say it's non-moral. Uh, this is a basic philosophy that we need to address because this, I think, is the root of the problem in so much so-called Christian music today. 
Because what they are saying is that there is no good or bad music. Incidentally, no generation has believed that until this one. You go back and check it historically. You can go back as far as you want. And no generation. In fact, I'm going to give you some quotes from clear back to the Old Testament, back to the time of Moses, <laughs> that will show that there's no way that music could be amoral and that there is no good or bad music. And this idea that there is no good or bad music is coming from the CCM people who want to accept everything they, they have. Because they, you talk to them, they say, but I like it. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Does the fact that you like it make it good? No. There are a whole bunch of things that I like that I don't do because I know they're wrong. Or some folks say, I don't like it. Some people say to me, the reason you're against rock music, you just don't like it. It has nothing to do with it. Or in this area of CCM particularly, they'll say, but I get a blessing from it. <laughs> now this is not a trick question, folks, but does the fact that they get a blessing from it make it good? Yeah. See, I've had people tell me they got a blessing out of Jesus Christ Superstar. Incidentally, I thought that thing was going to be gone years ago. It's right back again. It was on television again this Easter. It's come back very popular. It has not faded at all because it's a false doctrine. It's a false Christ. Now, even if they did get a blessing, I question their blessing. But even if they did get a blessing, would that make Superstar a good thing? Where Mary Magdalene in her song in that opera says about Jesus Christ, she's supposed to be a prostitute in the opera. And in, the, in, the, uh, in her song called I Don't Know How to Love Him, she says, he's a man, he's just a man, and I've had so many men before. In very many ways, he's just one more. Talking about Jesus Christ. I mean, that's terrible blasphemy, folks. But I have people tell me they got a blessing out of that. I've had people get up and walk out of my meetings mad at me because I mentioned there's something wrong with Superstar. Huh. You see, the problem is they've tried to say that music is amoral. I checked out several dictionaries. Let me just give you a quote from one of them. This is a secular dictionary, not a Christian dictionary. It says amoral means incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong. And is that ever true? You watch the people who go into the CCM and allow it in their church and you watch the other standards of separation go down the drain too. They'll go right along with it. I could give you all kinds of examples of that. <laughs> Robert Shaw, probably the greatest choral conductor of the 20th century. And Kurt Wetzel, who co-authored our book with me. And when he and I asked him in New York City when we were with him, what he believed about the morality of music, you know what he said? I believe all the arts are moral. I can't see how any of the arts can be neutral. He recognized the morality of music. Van Cliburn said the language of music is readable, it's writable, and it's recitable. You know who Van Cliburn is. Wynton Marsalis, he's a jazz and classical trumpeter, one of the best trumpeters around right today, says that play music that has a development section as opposed to something that repeats over and over again, that type of music will cause your mind to atrophy. <laughs> then notice what he said next. Also, stay away from the backbeat. You say, well, what is a backbeat? How am I to know what a backbeat is? Let me play an example for you as to what a backbeat is so that you can't miss, all right? That's the backbeat. 
get this. That's the predominant characteristic of rock music. Incidentally, all the rock examples I'm going to play for you are Christian recordings. The good music I'm going to play for you is secular music. <laughs> In our city, Greenville, South Carolina, at our big mall, the Haywood Mall, the store that plays the worst music is the Christian bookstore. I'm not exaggerating, folks. You go over there and check it. The store that plays the worst music in the whole mall is a Christian bookstore. <laughs> Wintmar Silas says, stay away from that beat. <laughs> He's got good sense. Here's a book by Martha Bayless. She's a Harvard professor, a TV and arts critic. Now notice where I'm going to. This is a book by her called Hole in Our Soul. She says, something has gone seriously wrong with the sound of popular music, which is, after all, what the music is made of. Here's a book by William Schaefer. He says, there is no separation of form and content in rock. It is fused as a continuous experience. The reason I mention this is because so many folks are saying, as long as the words are good, as long as we use the words of the Bible, how can you say this anything? Why, the music is just a vehicle to carry it. By the way, that analogy is not a good one. You say, why? Because music is not your inanimate object like your TV. Music is part of what comes through your TV. It's a part of the communication. But they all recognize that it is a continuous experience. One and the other go together, and the music takes over the words. Listen. Say, but how can you say there's something wrong with that? Why we're using the words of the Bible? Let my people go. Ah, the music has completely changed it. The music takes over and cancels out into the words. Let me ask you. We'll probably talk about this again, but I think it's valid right here. When people want to curse, curse and swear, whose whose name do they usually use? Oh, you say that's wonderful. The same, the name of Jesus Christ, so loud you can hear it all across town. He said, no, don't use my Savior's name like that. It turns my blood cold. Get goosebumps on my goosebumps. Yeah. But they say, we're using the words of the Bible. Yeah. But the way you say them takes over and can cancel out the original meaning of the words. USA Today, a letter to the editor from a professional musician. He says, music has the ability to lift, worship, and energize, yet it has in equal measure the power to destroy. There is such a thing as... Bad church music. Robert Shaw said that the music that is being used in many churches today is perverse. Wow. And I'm toning down what he said. I'm not making it as explicit as he was. Here's an interesting book called Music Physician for Times to Come. Again, we showed you this before. But it says music has the capability of exciting or calming uplifting or degrading, healing or harming. Isn't this interesting that all the communication experts seem to recognize the facts that we're talking about. We're basing it on the Word of God, but they recognize that it has all these powers. Along come the 
so-called Christian artists, and they say, oh no, it's not as bad as the world says it is. We think we can use it and make it something for the Lord. Sorry, folks. Doesn't work. And the problem is that they've made it amoral or neutral or non-moral. And they're saying God does not care what kind of music we use. <laughs> I submit to you, God does care. Because even in Isaiah 5.20, God pronounces a curse upon that kind of thinking when he says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And it even goes on and says they get to the point where they can't tell the difference between sweetness and bitterness or even between light and darkness. It always reminds me when I say things like this about R.A. Torrey, who back in his day said that he believed that 90% of the people in the churches where he ministered were not even saved. And I think we've got a lot of people today who think they know what the truth is, who think they know the gospel, and they've actually accepted a false gospel. And one of the devil's best tools of getting that false gospel in is through music. There are three important verses that teach us three things about God. You may want to write these verses down. I'd like for you to write things down and check me out, okay? <laughs> Don't just take what I'm saying for granted. Check me out and see if what I'm saying is actually based on the Word of God. Because I believe it is. In fact, if what I'm giving you is not based on the Word of God, I'd be afraid to give it to you. <laughs> I really would. But here in Exodus 15, verse 2, First song in the Bible, not the first mention of music in the Bible, but the first song in the Bible. We learn something about God. This is out of the books of history. If we go to Psalm 118.14, we're in the books of poetry now, and you'll find in almost the very same words, the same truth being taught. And when God repeats something, it's for a reason. Sometimes you and I repeat things because we run out of words. But when God repeats something, God does it for a reason. God has it in the books of history. He has it in the books of poetry. It comes again in the book of Isaiah. Now we're in the books of prophecy. The three major sections of the Old Testament all mention this truth that I'm going to give you right now. Now, if this is new truth, it's heresy. I think it's just neglected truth. I think it's something God wanted us to know all the way along, but we have not recognized it. Because these verses say, The Lord, Jehovah, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. God is our strength. He is our song. He also is our salvation. All three of those verses. If you check out those three verses, you'll say, almost see that they say the same thing in just in almost the same words. The first thing that they're trying to teach us is that the Lord, our God, Jehovah, is our strength. Jesus used that in John 15, verse 5, where he said, I am the vine, ye are the... If the branch does not abide in the vine, what happens to it? It dies. It abides alone. Why? Because the, the vine not only gives strength to the branch, the vine is the strength of the branch. And if you don't abide in the vine, you don't abide in Christ, you do not have any spiritual strength. God is our strength. Are you with me? But then notice, I'm going to skip over to number three. I'll come back to number two in just a minute. It also says he is our salvation. God is our salvation. Salvation is a person. And the person is? And if you don't have the person, you don't have salvation. No matter what else you have, whether you have a church, a creed, whatever you've got, a family background, if you do not have Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, you do not have salvation because salvation is a person. 
But notice what it says right in between those two. He also is our song. Somebody says, well, that's probably a song that praises God or a song that refers to God. Uh-uh. It's talking about instrumental music. And incidentally, it's also interesting to me that this word is only used in these three verses. Exodus 15, 2, Psalm 18, 14, Isaiah 12, 2. That's the only place, the only three places where this word is used. God even reserved this word for those verses because he was teaching us something special about himself. Because the word Simrath comes from a root word, Zamar. And we'll show you a New Testament word just like this later on. But the word Zamar means to pluck on the strings of your instrument with your fingers. Not even with a pick or a plectrum. It's plucking the strings of your instrument with your fingers. What it is saying, I believe, is that God is musical. Scripture teaches that God sings. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He, God, will joy over thee, his child, with... Wouldn't you love to hear God sing? <laughs> I love to sing. I love to lead people in singing. Most of you know that. When I get up to lead singing, I, get so, I say, always say to myself, I'm going to do this nice and calmly. I never do. I always get so excited about leading people. I love to do it. But can you imagine what it's going to be like when we get to hear God sing? One interesting sidelight, just study the voice of God. In the scripture, what the voice of God can do. You see, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. You say you do? Yeah, but it's in the future, not in the past. <laughs> when God's through the world, he's going to burn it up with a Big Bang. But it didn't, that's not the way he created it. Scripture makes it clear the way he created it. You see, because the voice of God has tremendous power. And God loves to sing. You know why we love to sing? You may not have a beautiful voice, but you know why you like to sing? You go anywhere in the world, people love music and they love to sing. Why? Because God made us that way. Because God himself sings. Scripture says that when you and I do right, God sings. Did you know that music is a very part of the nature of God? It's a part of his very nature. That's, again, another reason. I'm giving you all kinds of reasons. I'm not labeling them as I go by, but I hope you see I'm giving you all kinds of reasons that there is no way that music can be amoral and God doesn't care. If music is a part of heaven, if music is a part of the nature of God, then there must be principles that God has laid down for us that we ought to find out and make sure that our music is grounded in the nature and the person of God. Because God also plays the trumpet. I wish it said trombone, but it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. But it is not the silver trumpet. Zechariah chapter 9 says, The Lord God shall blow the trumpet. You say, well, that's not what it means. All right, you tell me what it means. <laughs> it says God plays the trumpet. And as I said just a minute ago, it is not the silver trumpet. It is the shofar. The shofar. The shofar is an instrument that is made out of a ram's horn. And if you'll check out when the shofar was used, 
you will find out that it was always used to announce a special occasion. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself, and I think the word himself is there for a reason, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the what? The trump of God. I personally believe that this is probably the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God, who plays the shofar, the trumpet, to announce his own coming when he comes back for us. Because if you go back to Zechariah 9, where it said, the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, you will find that that whole chapter is talking about the second coming of the Lord. Huh. That means God's musical. God sings, God plays the trumpet. Our God is a musical God. You know the Jesus sang when he's here on this earth, don't you? In Matthew 26, verse 30, when he's with the disciples in the upper room, it says, and when they had what? Sung a hymn. They went out on the Mount of Olives. You say, do you think we can know what they sang? I believe we can. You say, why? Because you know what they were celebrating, right? The Passover. You see, even today, in an Orthodox Jewish home, they still sing the Hallel Psalms. We got our word Hallelujah from that word? Psalms 113 to 118. Actually, Psalms 111 and 112 are introductory. Psalms 113 and 14 are sung before they eat the Passover supper. Psalms 115 to 118 are sung after they eat the Passover supper. The last psalm that Jesus would have sung with his disciples was Psalm what? 118. Do you remember what that psalm said? In verse 14, it said, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Can't you visualize being there? And Jesus is with his disciples as he's getting ready to go out to the garden and then go to the cross, and he is singing with them, Gentlemen, I am your strength, I am your song, and now I'm going out to the cross to fulfill this promise to become your salvation. Wouldn't you have loved to heard him sing that? Ah, that is exciting. But again, it shows us that music is very important in the economy of God, that even when Jesus Christ, our Savior, was here on this earth, he would sing with his disciples. You see, God is musical. He has made us in his image. And that's why you and I are musical. And that's why we love it so much.